0: CNN for Sunday, November 15, 2020. Hey there, we've met. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. Tonight, we're finally getting some clarity on the election. We've got some great analysis and a lot of conversation to uh, um, provide to the listener as a benefit of listening to the show. Uh, I've got a chat with uh, Cardiff Krishnire. Uh, On uh, what his bottom line is We talked for a long time I might have to take some of that material And put it in an extra show But uh, I wanted to give you His bottom line on uh, What he thinks went wrong In Florida Because things went wrong in Florida Uh, I'll be talking a little bit about that as well Then Rick Spizak has a Chat with Dennis Campbell Our friend from Wales Who will talk about Brexit and Trump and that's, that's what my note said Trump and um, So that should be interesting And Janine Maloff is uh, Doing the justice report Tonight on Trump's clumsy coup uh, So uh, so we have that to, to look forward to And we uh, hopefully we don't have A clumsy coup to look forward to Hopefully all of that is behind us um, You know uh Florida just is full of uh really bad ideas. I mean, everybody knows that, everyone's aware of that, but when it comes to all things political, uh it it's it's especially bad. It's, it's bad for the Democrats. Uh the Republicans are having a great time. Uh so I wanna dig in tonight. We're gonna dig in in uh in the beat. We're going to dig into what's going on in Florida. I'm going to share some articles with you, and uh, I'm going to drop some 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 thoughts your way. So uh, here we go. So a bunch of Democratic Party elites have gotten together with a bunch of Republican operatives, and they've figured out why the Democratic Party, especially in Florida, can't seem to win an election. And I'll be damned, Do you know what it is? Who could have seen this coming? It's the voters, the voters who actually want Medicare for all, and they want the police to stop killing people for no reason in their beds when they're sleeping, it's these voters, these people who actually have needs and need the government to do things for them, they're the ones who are the problem. It has absolutely nothing to do with the consultants. It has nothing to do with an inept party machine. It has nothing to do with corruption. It's all about how the voters want the wrong stuff. Now, that is, of course, obviously not right. That is a, a obviously bullshit. However, that is the narrative that is emerging uh, nationwide, but especially in Florida. And uh, this article that I have in front of myself right here from the Palm Beach Post, uh, here's what went wrong and why the Democrats need to switch strategies. This is an article by Wendy Rhodes in the Palm Beach Post where she has uh, – talked to Rick Wilson, Republican political operative, Rick Wilson, and uh, she's she's read a few Marco Rubio tweets, and from that, she now has the answer, and she's going to tell us the answer. And guess what? It's because you're all a bunch of socialists that want to defund the police. That is the problem. That is the reason why... Uh, We lost what should have been two safe seats in Florida and uh, five other seats nationwide. Now, here's what Wendy Rhodes uh, quotes from Marco Rubio. This is from his Facebook page. He says, quote, there's a reason why my only two enemies are communist China and the radical left. It's because I'm not afraid to speak out against them and their radical schemes to ruin our country unquote. This is the framing that is being applied to uh, the Democratic Party in Florida. This is the framing that we're supposed to go forward with and do something with. There's a saying that perception is reality in politics. And what you see happening right now with the struggle over this narrative is that these Republican operatives Like Rick Wilson and the Lincoln Project, alongside of uh, very wealthy donor class people like John Morgan, have come together to try and control the narrative and make sure that good things don't happen. And uh, in addition to good things not happening, they want to make sure that people don't talk about those good things because if you talk about those good things, then people will expect them to happen. So you got to stop talking about those good things. You got that? Never mind that no one has actually examined these campaigns to see where they spent their money and how they spent their money and what their strategy is. They want to get out there and preempt any kind of real criticism that could actually fix something. They want to make sure that that doesn't happen so that they can replace a real critique with their own fake critique. They want to make sure that Their consultants and the consultancy class is protected and they want to make sure that their own money is protected and they want to make sure that going forward they aren't inconvenienced in any way. And by golly, you having access to health care and people of color being assured that they're not going to be murdered in their beds by the police, that's going to inconvenience some rich people. So they're putting forth this bullshit narrative that socialism... Which nobody ran on, and defunding the police, which nobody ran on, are the reasons why people lost uh, congressional seats. But let's look at the subtext here, because what's actually being said by people like John Morgan right now, when John Morgan says, when many Democrats call themselves Democratic Socialists, they hand the Republican Party elections on a silver platter. He says, Words matter. There are words to use and words to lose. And then he says, "Try compassionate capitalist hashtag for the people." Uh, he tags Wendy Rhodes, Florida, who wrote this article, and he also tags the Rick Wilson. So, John Morgan, in order not to hand the the Republican Party uh, a win on a silver platter, is appealing to Democrats to embrace a Republican operative, Rick Wilson, uh, as a, as some kind of savior. Now, that is freaking insane. I mean, essentially, he's saying that if Democrats want to win, they need to start listening to uh, Rick Wilson and Marco Rubio because they're the ones who are going to show us how to get through this. They're the ones who really care about whether or not Democrats win elections going forward. The subtext here is that uh, voters and uh, people on the ground, the rank-and-file voters, aren't allowed to have a point of view. All right, The Democratic Party doesn't want you if you have a, a, a rose emoji in your uh, um Line. They don't want you if you go to a DSA meeting. They don't want you if you have have, uh, been a supporter of Bernie Sanders. I'll talk about that more in a minute, but that's clearly what they're going for here. They want to be able to pick and choose the voters who associate with the Democratic Party. And I would say to you that these losses that we've seen in 2020 are the result of the Democratic Party saying, we don't like you voters. We like these voters over here who are Republicans. And those are the people who we really want to come vote for us. And the rest of you guys who think that, uh, that, that we should have a functioning health care system that, that, where people can go to the doctor during a pandemic or that uh, uh, people of color shouldn't be shot dead by the police for no reason in their front yards or sleeping in their beds. All of you people are the reason why we're losing. So we're just going to shut you up, and if you don't shut up, we're going to push you out and make sure that we are not associated with you in any way, shape, or form. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's the voters who are wrong. It's the rank and file who have needs for government to actually address the problems that we're dealing with. I mean, right now, especially if you live in Florida, if you're a working person, chances are you're working in uh Service industry. We do not have a, a a creative class here. We don't have a grand uh, managerial professional class. It just doesn't exist. Um, the leadership in Florida has traded out the ability to have that kind of economy, the kind of economy that is in Denver, Colorado, and Atlanta, Georgia, and Phoenix, Arizona. They've traded out the opportunity to have that kind of economy in in order to have all these low-paying jobs. So in Florida, as we're being hit with this pandemic, we have an extraordinary and inordinate amount of people who are out of work and an unemployment system that is incapable of working. The unemployment system, money that people are owed when they're out of work because we've paid into unemployment insurance, you know, through our – Um, payroll deductions for years as workers. So we can't get what we're owed. And congressional Democrats have been unable and unwilling to stand up for us in Washington to get any kind of stimulus. Other countries like like in Australia, people have been getting $3,000 a month, just flat, just $3,000 a month. Holy crap, can you imagine if Americans had some sort of assistance I mean, to the tune of $3,000 a month, imagine if every family in the United States who's been suffering from losing their job and having people in the family who are sick and so on and so forth, imagine if they had $3,000 a month in assistance so that they could pay their rent and buy food. It would be a totally different ballgame. We might even see small businesses like like restaurants survive this uh, uh, economic downturn because people will actually have money to be able to spend to get food to eat. But according to uh, rich guy, John Morgan, it's you guys who want food on your table and you want to be able to pay your rent. You're the reason why the Democrats keep losing. It's your fault. So John Morgan was specifically speaking to the matter of Donna Shalala. It's very important that they are able to spend her loss to favor their interests, because no one, not a single person in Florida, has mistaken Donna Shalala as any kind of socialist or any kind of person who gives any kind of shit about the movement for black lives. So I responded to John Morgan, and I said, well, since words matter, you should know that socialism, quote-unquote, wasn't uttered once in her campaign, but you know what What was? Conflict of interest. She had a huge conflict of interest for her investments, and she showed incredible either ineptitude or funny business uh, regarding uh, those, those investments in her conflict of interest when she was called out on it. Now, the whole reason that that was an issue is because Nancy Pelosi appointed her the Coronavirus Bailout Oversight Committee, I mean, the only reason she was appointed to that committee by Nancy Pelosi was because uh, it's a sure thing that Donna Shalala isn't going to rock anybody's boat by going after graft and corruption. If they cared about oversight, they would have put Katie Porter in that seat, the person who actually lobbied publicly for the position. And let me just add further, too, that uh, another set of words that wasn't uttered in Florida at all during this election cycle was uh, the environment and the Green New Deal. Now, John Morgan doesn't mention that, and Wendy Rhodes in this article doesn't mention that because uh, everybody knows, especially people who live in the coastal areas, know that uh, the environment is a wildly uh, popular issue because people are getting ready to be washed out of their coastal areas. So Donna Shalala, uh, complains in this article, her, one of her quotes is this big complaint that, uh, quote, they beat us up on socialism and communism. It's, it's like McCarthyism. It's absolutely vicious. And so you got to ask yourself, uh, if you're if you're complaining about getting beat up on socialism, and then you turn around and say that that's McCarthyism, then you need to go back and maybe remind yourself what McCarthyism was about, and you should really remind yourself what what, what socialism actually is because I don't think any of these dodo birds have any idea. Not John Morgan, not Wendy Rhodes, not Donna Shalala, definitely not Lois Frankel. Uh, Nikki Fried. I mean, if uh, you know, Nikki Fried actually, and the and the Democratic Party in Florida refused to endorse, support, and campaign on the fifteen dollar minimum wage ballot measure, which won. Now that's the thing about Florida in this cycle is that we had this this ballot measure that's uh, um, very progressive that won the state. A ballot measure, by the way, that was put up by John Morgan, super sensitive about issues having to do with socialism. Does he not understand that a democratic voice in what the minimum wage is, is exactly the definition of socialism that democratic socialists uh, operate from? I mean, nobody is talking about uh, taking over the entire economy and nationalizing every business and uh, doing that kind of thing. When people talk about socialism, what they're talking about is a, a, a social system that has equity for people so that workers can have a voice, so that uh, some basic minimal uh, needs are met. I mean, this is, this is bare bone stuff. This isn't luxury automated space communism or anything. That's not what we're talking about. This ridiculous article says, uh, One questions whether Democrats are too idealistic. And this is the part where John Morgan is is quoted. It says, Attorney John Morgan founder of Morgan & Morgan, and the force behind successful constitutional amendments to legalize weed and increase the minimum wage in Florida, agreed that Democrats needed to forcibly push back against false attacks by Republicans, but they must also overcome messaging from within their own party, he said, citing socialism, gun control, and law enforcement policies. This is John Morgan, quote, It is not Joe Biden's message, but it doesn't matter, Morgan said. When you think of defunding the police, you think of the Democratic Party. In a sane world, that would be considered a good thing, that the Democrats have a brand that rank and file can believe in that they're going to be protected from these uh, neo-Nazi stormtroopers, essentially. I mean, everybody's seen the footage that came out of D.C. yesterday and, you know, and ongoing for the last few months. There is simply no narrative that can be deployed against the, the reality of how uh, sadistic and awful the police have become. There's no narrative that you can deploy that is going to make people not want the police to stop murdering people. If the brand of the Democratic Party is uh, that that we stand on the side of the movement for Black Lives, then let's stand on the side of the movement for Black Lives and do the things that need to be done to reform these these criminal police departments. We have cities in the United States where the budget for the police department is the largest line item of everything being being uh, spent in the city. In Orlando, we're up over 40% of our uh, uh, budget is spent on the police, and we're not getting that value back. We don't have a police force that we can depend on to keep us safe. Instead, we have a police force that most people are afraid of, that you just don't want to call them if you're having a problem uh, in your house because you don't know. You know, like let's say you call the police because uh, someone is having a mental health crisis and you call the police and they come and, you know, shoot that family member. Well, that's not the outcome that anybody wanted when they called the police. Fixing these problems should be a priority. It should not be seen as a messaging problem. Continuing on with the article. He said voters see right through the unattainable promises of free health care and free tuition, and that's why the Democratic Party is too idealistic. He says you have to promise something that's realistic. The Democratic Party's problem is they reach too high. So it's not the ineptitude of the party. It's, It's not the corruption with the consultant class. It's not any fundamentals. It's, it's that those voters want a bunch of stuff that they can't have because there's a bunch of rich guys sitting around smoking their cigars, and uh, they're just not going to stand for people having health care or tuition or any of the stuff that they enjoyed as young people that was able to you know, lift them into the middle class. They, they want to make sure that that is not available to uh, young people now. And let me just remind listeners that uh, state tuition used to be so low as to essentially be free. And in many states, it was free and was designed that way. And also, healthcare has not always been this expensive. It, it's not always been this unattainable. It used to be that you could, uh, you know, have a health care crisis and you know, not go into bankruptcy. You know, so people... Uh, of the boomer generation and the greatest generation or whatever, people older people had massive economic advantages growing up that they want to make sure that younger people don't have access to. And I really don't understand like how anyone can be so selfish and can be so short-sighted. Uh, I I tend to think that what's going on here is people don't realize. I I think that they I, I'm very platonic on this. I think if people understood that tuition used to be free not too long ago, and if they understood that you know you used to be able to access healthcare uh, without having to uh, break the bank. Uh, that people would think differently. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe people are just deep down inside just really awful, and you know want to make sure that their status is protected by uh, other people having a lesser status. Another gem in this story is where the author, the reporter, cites the Florida Democrats 2019 white paper called Path to Power, the Roadmap to Winning in Florida, and that the goal was to flip the state blue by doing things like engaging minority communities, focusing on early outreach, and using locals instead of outsiders to head up the party's ground game. The writer says it didn't work. She doesn't say they didn't do it. She said it didn't work. But I'm telling you, the truth is, is they didn't do it. And anybody who's, or you know, seen anything happen politically in Florida for the last few years, and especially this last cycle, knows outside consultants have been running the board. There's five of them. Uh, I could name them off. There's uh, uh, Ashley Walker. There's Scott Arsnow. There's Eric Johnson. There's uh, Christian Alvert, and there's Jackie Lee. There's five basic consultants that have been running the board in the state of Florida since forever, and they've been losing since forever. And maybe it's time for a change. Maybe the change is just accountability. Maybe it's just time to say, hey, look, uh, we see you. We know how you operate, and uh, we need to actually win some races, so we're going to do something different this time. So when it comes to the basics, the uh, Florida Democratic Party uh, under Terry Rizzo, uh, current state party chair, and uh, by and large, it, they they can't do the basics. Yeah. So so all of this talk about communism and. Uh, Socialism and uh, uh defunding the police as if any of that played into any of these races is just ludicrous none of that none of that happened now Terry Rizzo, the state chair of the party, is uh i wouldn't be surprised if she didn't run for the the next cycle you know if she stepped down that would actually be the right thing to do um she might not do that. She might try to run again, but uh, rest assured, she's going to be challenged, and she's going to be challenged by some very angry people. Her quote in this article is remarkable. She says that um, she says that discord in our party does not lend itself to a winning coalition. What is she talking about? What is she talking about with discord within our party? Well, she's talking about lefty Bernie people, Uh, and in this way, her and John Morgan are singing from the same hymnal. Uh, To them, the problem with elections in Florida are because uh, there's something wrong with the voters and not because there's something wrong with the party. The people who run the party absolutely will not tolerate anybody um, to the left of Joe Biden. It's just, it's not allowed. And if they get a sense that you're to the left of, uh, you know, what's acceptable, they make sure that you are alienated, you know, and don't think you can go running to a progressive caucus or, you know, any, you know, party affiliated, you know, progressive this and that because they're there to make sure that you stay on the straight and narrow as well. And I've seen those groups undermine candidates. I've seen those groups undermine policy just as much as the straight Democratic Party. So this whole article is based on uh, fantasy. It's all magical thinking. These are the words that uh, rich and powerful people keep telling themselves in order to justify the salaries that they make and the decisions that they make and the positions that they have. That's, that is their only goal is to justify their existence. So what's wrong with this? Let's just, let's, let's just be very freaking clear right now. Everybody's talking about messaging as if messaging is this uh, uh, magical ointment and that if you just find the right words and you put the right words out there on a piece of direct mail or on, on an, a, a television ad, if you say the right words, abracadabra, whatever it is, then you will start winning. And, and you've got to make sure that your voters aren't saying the bad words. So make sure your voters don't talk about, you know, needing health care or anything inconvenient. But, you know, find that right message. A writer that I tend to uh, tend to appreciate every time I see him uh, publish something is uh, Alex Perrine. He's writing in the New Republic, and he did a piece that says, uh, "What if Democrats' message just doesn't matter?" He says Florida voters backed a fifteen dollars minimum wage, so did Joe Biden, and he lost the state. There are important lessons here for the party. Now he kind of he kind of. Pussyfoots around a little bit and then he gets right down to it. He says, What if the argument itself about messaging is moot? What if it barely matters what Democrats talk about or campaign on? What if this is less a problem of political messaging or positioning than of political education, information access, and ubiquitous propaganda? In other words, if the Democrats actively try to abandon identity issues, will anyone in this political environment actually stop associating them with identity issues? If they ran on a strictly class-focused campaign, how many marginal voters would hear their messaging and actually believe it? What he's saying here is that the the Democratic brand is 100% spoiled. Our experience of the Democratic Party is that they will not do the things that that we elect them to do, and they will most certainly do the things that serve their own personal self-interest. So they will cut deals with the Republicans. If it comes down to c- cutting Social Security in the Biden administration, that's going to happen, and there's not going to be any you know big pushback from the party because guess what? The entire party is uh, towing the same line. They're they're singing the same song here. So they can't win on a positive message, or they won't put forth a positive message. Then what they try to do is to win by smearing the other side, by uh, doing a negative campaign on their opponent. And that's what we saw uh, almost exclusively with, with Donald Trump, with running against Donald Trump, is that he is such an extraordinary threat. You know, he's probably going to uh, bring the end of the world. He's such an extraordinary threat that uh, if you don't do something about him, then you are essentially a bad person. Well, people's experience of Republicans is that for the last 40 years, every single Republican was supposed to bring about the end of the world. And so when they finish their terms and the world doesn't end, then uh, that message stops Resonating, It stops working on people. And you add to that the fact that the Democratic Party is intent on rehabilitating the uh, history uh, and the reputations of people like George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, Mitt Romney, and now you can add to that list a whole slew of Republican operatives. I mean, I'm not talking about Roger Stone. He's the bad Republican operative. But Rick Wilson, he's a good Republican operative, and so is Steve Schmidt. They're dreamy neoconservatives. As a matter of fact, we're going to use Rick Wilson and uh, the Lincoln Project. We're going to use everything they say in terms of uh, taking advice for fixing our party because if anybody should know how to make the Democratic Party work uh, uh, operate effectively It's going to be a bunch of Republican operatives But definitely not Roger Stone Like he like That is a bad Republican operative Now you can tell a good Republican operative From a bad Republican operative By uh, By nothing Actually there is no way to tell the difference Between them it just depends on Who is on the payroll at MSNBC At the moment and who Isn't so, good luck with that. So, there is no solid ground to stand on for Democrats to make this, uh, th- this negative argument even. You know, it's the boy who cried wolf. They've done it so often that it just is drained of any of its power to work again. It is a miracle that Joe Biden won under these circumstances because Joe Biden is the absolute face of uh, you know, Democrats not standing by any kind of democratic values or democratic principles, as he is the author of the, uh, de- of the crime bill that started mass incarceration. He was also one of the biggest cheerleaders for the Iraq War and the Patriot Act and so on and so forth. He is not a stalwart, you know, torchbearer for uh, democratic values. He is a torchbearer for making deals with Republicans. And uh, <clears throat> one of his uh, pet projects for many years has been cutting social security, so that's going to be interesting. So the point is, is that you're not going to fix this with messaging, and you're not going to fix this in one or two cycles with uh, you know just cleaning up your act and making sure you outreach those minority communities, quote unquote, as was said, said in that other article. It is a branding problem that is is at the core. Of the party. And that is that nobody is going to believe a goddamn word you say as long as you are who you are. Things have got to change immensely for people to come back and believe a damn word you have to say. I mean, because, you know, we're not stupid. We see that when, when Republicans are elected, they make sure that they go to Washington and they deliver for their base. When Democrats are elected, they go to Washington and make damn sure that they point at their base and they say, oh, those dumb, stupid people over there with the things that they want, we're going to make goddamn sure that they don't get the things that they want. And that's exactly what this article was in the Palm Beach Post. It was the the, the party elite pointing to the rest of us who need health care during a pandemic, who are getting ready to be evicted from our apartments or lose our houses again, and they're saying we're the problem. We're the problem because we have needs. We're the problem because, you know, we are living beings that actually need to go see a doctor every now and then, especially during a pandemic. No, we're the problem because we complain when the police shoot innocent people in their beds as they're sleeping. That's the problem? You think that's the problem? The fact that you think that that's the problem, that's the problem. And so here we are. And we are here every single cycle. And uh, we all feel like broken records um, going through this year after year. But here we are. Here we go. And... uh, And I guarantee you we will be right back here in four years having the exact same conversation, definitely in two years after the midterms, because that's going to be a bloodbath. But, um, yeah, things are not looking good for Democrats right now, which uh, this isn't a partisan thing. What that means is that things aren't looking good for people. Things aren't looking good for you and me. I don't give a shit what happens to fucking John Morgan. He can go jump in a lake for all I care. Uh, He's got all the money in the world He'll be fine The rest of us are hurting And uh, and uh, The next time One of these motherfuckers points at us And says that we're the problem For saying that uh, we need help We need to look them Square in the eye And put it right back on their plate And say no you're the problem We're the voters We're the ones who determine who wins and who loses You guys Are the ones that need to change, not us. Okay, guys, we are going to keep this rolling. I gotta tell you, I just watched the uh, SpaceX rocket launching to the ISS. Saw it from my driveway. What a moment. So cool. Um, I had a long conversation with uh, Florida political analyst, analyst and analyst, Cardek Krishnar. And uh, this is just a piece of what we talked about. And we're kind of picking up on the same theme from uh, my first segment. Uh, so this is this is kind of kind of midway. So I'm I'm, I'm going to drop you right into the conversation, and uh, we'll see you uh, at the top of the hour with uh, Rick and uh, Dennis Campbell. So Cardic, I want to get your thoughts on how much uh, messaging wins elections. Do you think that the Democrats are doing a good job with messaging? Do you think messaging matters? Uh, Right now it seems like there's a a push for more or a different kind of messaging. So I'm really curious what your thoughts are on
1: this. There's a lack of trust in the Democratic Party because they are all things to all people, and they come up with this. These boilerplate arguments and these platitudes that they that they spit out uh, when they're talking about messaging and the platitudes are always like we're gonna do better for you on health care will happen probably not we're gonna do better for you on education well they really don't have control of that but clearly this state is one of the worst states in education which is part of the reason why I think there are other kind of structural reasons for why the is becoming more Republican and it's not necessarily all the fault of Democratic, the Democratic Party or Democratic elected officials. But the, the, the level of education is so bad in the state now that young professionals don't want to raise a family in Florida. So they often to move to Georgia, and they're helping making that, make that place more competitive. But there are a number of reasons why working-class voters would not trust the Democratic Party but would vote for a $15 minimum wage. Uh, and plus, I think the professional class of the Democratic Party the uh, lobbyists, as I talked about, the, the agriculture commissioner, she's an ex-lobbyist, uh, and and, and uh, the consulting class uh, double dips as lobbyists, lobbying in front of the Republican legislature, um, and often they lobby for business interests. They lobby for uh, some of the worst corporations in America, from the progressive perspective. So when you when you consider this, I think you have to why so many people would vote. For Donald Trump and then go for the minimum wage increase. They think, they think Trump is probably better for the working class than the Democrats are at this point. Whether that's true or not, because anytime I say this to a Democrat, look, they get angry. Well, you know he, he, you know, he cut taxes for the rich and he's concerned about the stock market and all of this stuff. Okay. I get that. That's reality. But reality doesn't isn't reality in the political world in the campaign world. Perception is reality. And the perception is He's fighting harder for working-class voters than Nancy Pelosi. Bottom line, and Joe Biden, uh, despite Joe Biden's background as a really good, you know, fighter in the U.S. Senate, that was that was many years ago. Um, he, he, he's now tarred by association with the party led by Pelosi, who uh, failed to deliver on stimulus, who failed to deliver on um, on on uh, unemployment, who's failed to deliver on any number of things that, in the middle of a global pandemic, would have helped. Working family. Now, you could say it's not her fault, it's the fault of Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. Okay, again, that might be reality legislatively, but that's not reality to the vote.
0: Well, and I, I'm glad that this kind of wrapped back around to perception as reality in politics, because I was just getting ready to bring up this fabulous article that Alex Perrine wrote in uh, New Republic, And it's called, What If Democrats' Message Just Doesn't Matter? And his thesis here, in this vein of perception is reality, he says that people's experience is what drives their beliefs in politics. And so when it comes to the Republicans, if our message is uh, the Republicans are uh, what the, the, there's at least three of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And that's the message that we always have. The experience people have is that Republicans get elected and the end of the world doesn't come over and over and over again. The end of the world doesn't come. And so sooner or later, that message is uh, um, stripped of its uh, effectiveness. Now I think it works somewhat on Trump, but not... Incredibly, I mean, this is a close election and Trump won more women voters and more uh, uh, Republican men. And, you know, he, he outperformed in places that he shouldn't have. So party elites want us to believe that the reason why Trump won is because people are talking about socialism. So the fix to that for party elites is messaging, you know. We want the voters to shut up, and we want our messages to get across, whatever those may be. And here comes Alex Perrine, and he says, hey, what if this argument is moot about ideology? What if it barely matters what Democrats talk about or campaign on? What if this is less a problem of political messaging or positioning than of political education, information access, and ubiquitous propaganda? Um, and then he goes into the experience stuff. And so when you start to think about the experience of the Democrats contrasted with the Republicans, if the Republicans are supposed to be the bringers of the apocalypse, the Republicans or the Democrats are supposed to uh, come along and do great things for people. And if the Democrats never deliver on that, like the ACA didn't deliver r- really great things. You know, I mean, it's great people can be on in, until they're 26 but when you have to buy on the market yourself and all you can afford is a bronze plan that really doesn't cover anything then you're sort of like well that doesn't do me any good i don't really care if it stays or goes whatever your experience of the brand is that it doesn't work for you and what what they say that they stand for what democrats say they stand for they don't actually fight for any of that stuff so we so we have these these experiences that are vastly different than uh, Than the messages that that get put out by by the Democratic Party specifically.
1: Yeah, and uh, have we all survived? Um, we may we may have our ideology, and we may we may feel uh, our pet, our pet projects and the things we we care about aren't being tended to. But have we all survived Rick Scott's governorship? Yeah, we've all survived Rick Scott's governorship. We're all still here. I, I think a lot of people thought maybe. Uh, Uh, the way the Democrats ran against Scott, we'd all be dead by 2018 if he got reelected. Well, that didn't happen, right? And and it's the same thing can be said for George W. Bush. I mean, that was the the striking thing to me was that when Jeb Bush got reelected in 2002, I thought, yeah, will we even still be here in 2006 to fight another governor's race? Well, it turns out we were. So the Democrats constantly using apocalyptic apocalyptic, uh, messaging and basically saying... uh, Look, uh, this is the end of the world. If if, uh, if Bush wins, it's the end of the world. If, if uh, Romney wins, the end of the world. If Trump wins, has failed pretty dramatically. I mean, it, it has not it has not resonated with the public. It has broken the trust between the Democratic Party and uh, and, and and the voters. This having been said, coronavirus may have been the thing that changes that long term um, because let's see. I I, I think. There is a, um, set a, 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 of people, it might be a small subset, but it also might be a subset on the margins that allowed Biden to win in Michigan uh, as comfortably as he did, as it turns out, and win in Pennsylvania, win in Wisconsin, the places we're talking about, win in Georgia. Uh, Georgia has been, actually in the Atlanta area, pretty hard hit by coronavirus. And uh, Brian Kemp, the governor, opened up before any other governor in the country reopened. So that, that might have played a factor there. Maybe coronavirus is the first time uh, people turn around and say, you know what? We voted for Trump or Trump got elected. The Democrats said we wouldn't survive before you're the four years. My dolly. My gosh, I, I got sick. Uh, my, uh, my grandmother died. My uncle died. My aunt is, is, is sick and has permanent damage. So uh, COVID might have been... The, the game changer on that. But it's maybe also a one, one-off, right? We're not going to have global pandemics every two or three years. Uh, and there is, I, I think, the the key dividing line between people who voted for Biden and people who voted for Trump with this issue. I, I think it's almost – I looked at the exit polling, and, and it was like – I think if you think coronavirus is a serious issue, I didn't look at the national exit polls. I went kind of state by state, but in a lot of states it was – you think coronavirus is, is a serious issue, and it would be whatever, 20, 25% of the electorate. Uh, do you think it's the most important issue right now, et cetera? And the vote would be like 90 to 10 for Biden. Uh, and then those who didn't think it was an important issue or thought it was overblown, the media had overhyped it, it was like 95 to 5 for Trump. And these numbers were not normally in exit polling, you see numbers which are like 67 33, uh, 65 35. And you think, oh, yeah, that shows a trend, right? 65% of the people who thought this was an issue um, voted, for, uh, voted for for this one, and and, and uh, et cetera. So basically, per the exit polling data, if people were voting based on the economy, it was almost, and the Democrats don't want to hear this, but this goes back to the lack of trust among working-class voters. Again, looking at swing states, I have not looked at national exit polling. I have not picked up exit polling in California or New York or, or, or Texas, right? These states that... Go safely to one party or another, um, but um, the economic. If you were concerned about the economy, eight, out, eight times out of ten, at least you were voting for Trump, and if you were concerned about coronavirus, nine times out of ten, you were voting for Biden. So um, that just reinforces a polarized nation and uh, apocalyptic uh, pronouncements by the Democrats don't impact those people who don't think coronavirus is serious, and coronavirus the people who don't think coronavirus is serious, if you take the, the, the 20 or 25%, whatever, some of these states that voted with that as the number one issue, like nine, nine to one for Biden, you take that, and those people, most of those people probably would have voted Democratic anyway. But if you take that out of the, the overall pie, people who don't think the world's coming to an end, Trump wins overwhelmingly in most of these places. So, um, yeah, that messaging has not worked. And um, even when we have a global pandemic, which by, I think, any objective standard we can say, this, pr- this president has not only botched it, but has made the United States look like a third world country has made the United States look no different than the developing countries of Africa or, or black America. Uh, and I say that in all, in all spirit of one, uh, of, 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 you know, supporting those countries in their development and their growth. I'm not trying to insult those countries, but uh, basically the United States does not look like a Western country in how it's handled this pandemic. Uh, it, it, it is handled it so badly to the point that the rest of the West wants something to do with the United States. Yes. Trump, in spite of that, won 72 million votes for president. So, I mean, that just tells you where the Democratic Party is, or maybe where the country is. You can't message to a large percent of large percentage of the population. They just don't think that this is a very important issue. or They think it's some sort of hoax, and it's some sort of uh, plot to, uh, to, to 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 have some sort of to have a coup, effectively, or to shut down. Uh, The government. I mean, some of the things I've heard from Republicans about this is that coronavirus is intended to shut down the economy so that the economy collapses so that Biden wins. I mean, this is sort of the thing that people were saying. So
0: that narrative, um,
1: unfortunately,
0: that that narrative has been shoehorned into all kinds of different outcomes. And so I kind of look at that hoax narrative as uh, as noise, and I'm trying to find the signal in the noise. And uh, uh, so, so with regard to exit polls, but in Florida, uh, support if support for the economy was your number one issue, Donald Trump in the exit poll from Fox News just for Florida, Donald Trump got 56% of the share of the vote. If you uh, if you switch that to if your main reason is uh, coronavirus, then Donald Trump still beat out Joe Biden, but just by one point. It was 43% to 44%. Then they went and broke out the different aspects of coronavirus. So you got down to have you lost a job and so on and so forth, but they didn't pull how that filtered into people's answers, which I, I wish there was more data on that.
1: Yeah, so the data I was looking at was from the Edison Institute, right? And they, they kind of overwhelmingly, if you were concerned about coronavirus and you thought yeah, public health was the number one issue, it went basically nine to one for Biden. I mean, it was a ridiculous number. And if you felt the opposite, then it was nine to one to eight to two the other way for Trump.
0: Wow, um, I've got those, I've got those numbers here too, and and I just, I, I think it's such an interesting. Uh, question, because of uh, different people's experiences, and you know, Florida is is a big uh, uh, service industry state. Like you said, we're we're not getting those big creative jobs. Those are going to places like Atlanta, Georgia, Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, Denver, Colorado, um, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Florida doesn't have a, a, a center of young creative commerce like any of these other states. Like, we've, we've just emptied out. And so the workforce is a lot of, you know, tourism workers, people who are in uh, service industry. And I, I can kind of imagine uh, someone in service industry who's in, it's in their economic interest to vote Democrats. Somewhat, I guess. I, I mean, it, at least that's the brand. That's that's what you're supposed to do. But I can also see people thinking, well, uh, I don't have a job. I don't have a, a, a any kind of unemployment assistance. We've only got that one check of stimulus. Maybe I vote for the Republican, who's terrible, because, uh, it, it, Trump seemed to at least Trump's message, as he put it forth, was more robust on economy but, than on locking things down, I guess anti-locking things down. Just spitballing, by the way. Yeah, like, like, I'm not, know, not what, attached what, to that.
1: No, no, I, but, but we, we don't have enough data to actually make a determination. But spitballing is probably just because it's, it's a logical hypothesis you, you've you made, and there has to be some explanation for the Democrats underperformance in Florida relative to the other States. Because I, I don't think I quite got into the number, which is that in, in every other swing state that was targeted by these campaigns, whether it be Minnesota, which which had voted for Clinton but then voted for Biden by a bigger margin, Maine, New Hampshire fit those category, that category. Those that, and then Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, which had voted for for uh, um, Trump in sixteen, and then to Clinton, or states like uh, like North Carolina that voted for Trump but then voted for uh, 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 him this time by a lesser margin, Uh, and then Georgia and Arizona, which were flips, that voted for Trump in 16. The only state that was targeted heavily by both campaigns and a lot of money was spent in, which moved further towards the Republicans from 16 to 20, was Florida, and it was a substantial move. It was a move where, as I said, Hillary Clinton lost the state by 116,000 votes, and Joe Biden, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's at least 400,000. I want to say it might be four, 425. So basically lost the state by 300,000 more votes, uh, which translates to, uh, about a, a one and a half percent. Uh, sorry, about two and a half percent more. He lost the state by. So Hillary Clinton lost by 1.2% and, uh, Biden lost by like 3.5%, which, uh, also is the, uh, is the most decisive victory at the top of the ticket for Republican, uh, in this state since, uh, 2004, the presidential election, Um, the uh, the Kerry versus Bush. 2006, the U.S. Senate race was top of the ticket. The Democrats won that. 2008, uh, Obama won Florida. 2010, uh, okay, so 2010, I guess the Senate race was top of the ticket, but Marco Rubio won Florida, won won in the three-way race with less than 50% of the vote. So this is the the 50, 51-point-whatever that um, Trump got is the highest percentage a Republican has gotten at the top of the ticket in Florida in 16 years. Mm-hmm. As much as we think Republicans keep winning in Florida, they have not won with this percentage of the vote in 16 years. Uh, let's not forget Rick Scott won by 0.6% uh, or not even that, 0.4% against Bill Nelson uh, last time uh, in 2014. Uh, the, he won by less than a percentage point over, over uh, uh, Chris. And uh, 2012, Obama won the state. So this is a very bad thing when you compare Florida to the rest of the nation. We just went through why we think the Democrats have problems nationally, why uh, uh, Trump, uh, why, did, uh, why the Republicans did so well in the U.S. Senate and, and U.S. House races. Uh, and Biden uh, just got by. It's great by in a couple of states. Uh, Georgia, uh, Arizona, uh, those two, and Nevada were particularly close. Those three states. Uh, and Wisconsin, those four states were all very close. Um, kind of like the 1960 election when— John Kennedy won the election, but New Jersey, Missouri, Texas, and Illinois were all reeds or fan margins. Same thing provided in the four states I mentioned, although they are smaller states than, um, than Texas and Illinois in those days, who were two of the larger states. But, um, but he still performed better in 2020 than Clinton did in 2016 in all the states we talked about, except for Florida, where, there, where this is the high watermark for the Republicans in the last 16 years. So th- that cannot be um, underplayed. I know people from Florida don't want to talk about that. Um, They want to uh, dispute that sort of uh, narrative or that sort of conversation. Now, we can dig, dig deeper once we have all the data Brooke, as we talked about, Mm -hmm. and and, and it's right now we're spitballing a lot. But the the, the fact remains, um, as a nation as a whole, at, at the presidential level, swung towards the Democrats by... Uh, what, what did Hillary Clinton get? 48% of the national popular vote, right? Biden is up at about 51, quote, like 50.9. So swung by three points towards the Democrats. Florida has swung two and a half points the other way. So that, that, that's indisputable. That that Whatever the cause of that, that has happened. So that's the bottom line.
0: Well, and, you know, we, okay, So so we moved from – Execution versus ideology to sociology versus ideology versus execution. We you know kind of added the demographics and talked about uh, creative centers like Atlanta or Denver. Uh, we would be remiss not to have a discussion about uh, the Latino vote. Because I was led to believe a few years ago that there was this thing called the Rising American Electorate that was really hot in Florida. Like it was the thing, and Florida was going to be blue forever, because if you just give it five, seven, ten years, there would be so many progressive Latino voters in Florida that we would look like a a northeastern state. So what happened with the Latino
1: vote? And they said the same thing about Texas. I still remember the emerging Democratic majority, Ruiz Teixeira, and uh, I forgot his co-author, that basically uh, talked about how Texas was going to flip uh, in in, in the near future because of this this Latino vote and uh, creative class around Austin and Dallas, which, by the way, the creative class around Austin and Dallas have have helped uh, cut the margins for Democrats. And Beto O'Rourke almost won that Senate race two years ago. But the Democrats still haven't carried Texas in a presidential race. They still haven't won statewide an election in Texas since nineteen ninety eight of uh, uh, since Bob Bullock. Oh no, excuse me. Uh, I, I don't think they I don't think they won the lieutenant governorship. I don't think they won a statewide race in Texas since ninety four. Uh the unless they won like a railroad commission or something. So uh, and in Florida it, it has gone the other way, right? We were we were like to believe after the twenty twelve election, which we talked about Miami Gate County went sixty two percent for Barack Obama, Washington on the back of Latino votes. Uh, younger latino voters that effectively florida was going to be in the blue collar forever now the last four elections you've, you've progressively gotten worse in this state because keep in mind in 2018 for as close as florida was it was a, a democratic year so florida performed significantly worse than the rest of the country in 2018 so you're now talking about a situation where the democrats uh counted on a constituency they saw to a large extent, this constituency as a monolithic constituency, they felt like all they needed to do was, was turn them out. The Republicans wisely said, Let, let's try and cut margins in those communities. And there had already been a playbook for it. Okay. Jeb Bush and George W. Bush there in 2004 and two, 2002 and 2004, respectively. 2004. Um, go back and look. Bush actually carried off the old account. Uh, and there was a, uh, a, a real bleed of Puerto Rican votes that time in orange also in 2004. So there has been, it has been done now. it was executed masterfully in 2018 and 2020 with their socialist, their messaging about socialism, their messaging about um, Democrats uh, being a bad for, uh, for, 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 for their communities. But, you know, dialing back the socialism thing for a minute, that seems to be also a very popular narrative to jump on. And yeah, that has had some effect. We win Joe Biden, had a much more liberal voting record on, uh, well, I don't know what term you would use, more left less voting record on foreign policy than uh, when he was a U.S. senator than Hillary Clinton did when she was a U.S. senator. So um, it was easier to pin it on Biden than it was on Clinton four years ago, and that's why part of the reason it didn't work better against Biden. But take that out of the equation for a minute. Let's talk about the fact that Rick Scott has learned to speak Spanish to a certain extent, you know, whether his Spanish is good or not, uh, that's not from either side, but he's learned to speak Spanish. Ta- let's talk about the fact that Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis, uh, or Rick Scott and the Repu- Republican Party of Florida, then Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis after he was nominated against Adam Putnam, did events on Spanish-language television. They, they started advertising in Spanish months before the Democrats did. They were on uh, Hispanic media. They were on um, Spanish-language radio in 2018. So then, you've already got movement from 2016 to 2018. It's the only place in the country um, where there was movement from the from the D's to the R's. Were in some of these Latino communities in Florida. So the Republicans are like, okay, working we'll Florida. Let's go to let's go to Texas. Let's go to uh, let's go to Nevada. Let's go to Arizona and try and cut the margins there, which they were able to successfully do at least in Texas. Um, I, I believe they probably did it to an extent in, in Nevada too, because Clark County didn't perform for biden as they anticipated but the other parts of the state where he was much stronger than Hillary clinton did. um so then they apply that playbook again they're up on spanish language television early they have rick scott now a u.s senator communicating in spanish to that electorate what did the democrats do the democrats rely on the usual tired messages about health care and education uh rely on uh of, on the. Uh, identity, really, identity politics. And then um, when they get a batch of really bad polls, all of which are consistent. I mean, polling took a, took a beating in this election, but one thing that I saw that was consistent in the polling was that uh, there was significant weakness among the Democrats that, all the way down the ballot, starting with Biden all the way down the ballot in Latino communities in both central Florida and south Florida. So uh, they, they react late to that, and then getting surrogates to go in, the entire Spanish language speaker to, to, to operate on the ground in September. By this time, Rick Scott has already communicated uh, on behalf of Donald Trump and the Republican Party, uh, Rick Scott's operation, not just Governor Scott or Senator Scott himself, with everybody that needs to be communicated with. The question was just how much how, how much were they going to cut off the Democratic margin? It wasn't any more like okay, we can run at the margins we were at 2016. Now, the Democrats thought they could. They were very naive and thought they might repeat their performance from 2016 uh, and that uh, these Latino voters would come back home. I, I had warned people that they had already been persuaded they're voting Republican. You're, you're better off doing something to suppress turnout. Uh, <laughs> we can't, can't let them turn out and vote for, for, for Trump, but uh, no one listened to me, and this is what <laughs> happened. So it is a systematic long-term effort by the Republican Party led by Rick Scott, who I can't stand ideologically, but I have to give him a lot of credit for his political acumen, to realize after 2016, oh, wow, we need to to cut into that vote because otherwise what you said every group has said for you for the last 10 years was going to happen. Yes, Florida was going to realign into the blue column, and then as the Latino population continued to grow, it would just get ever more blue, and it would go like Colorado, which we mentioned earlier in the show, was a Republican state in 2004, and by 2012, we didn't even consider it a swing state anymore. Nevada, um, I guess, it's still considered a swing state, but the Democrats keep winning it, so it may be off the table since California. We saw how California realigned with the Latino vote, uh, pushed that from a, uh, a state that had voted Republican seven successive times for successive times presidents, from 68 to 88. Since 92, it has not voted uh, for Republican the margin has never been in single digits either uh, in, in that state since 92, since the Latino vote became a force. So, obviously, these groups all thought border would go the same way, and it very well could have. But they didn't do their job. They didn't do it well. They, they expected this just to happen because of the demographics. They didn't feel like they had to work it. And if they did work it, they did it in a very token way or a haphazard way. And we are where we are. And I'm sorry, a lot of people are going to hear this and say, oh, you're criticizing us. We did this. We did that. You know, we reached out to this one. It didn't work, OK? But the, the proof is in the numbers. We, we got, we got our, 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 uh, um, our rear end handed to us in Florida uh, on, uh, in terms of Democrats and with the Latino community. We're, we're in big trouble. And so now the state is more Republican than it was when people were making those statements to you, Brooke, about, oh, it's just going to realign. it's going to be like the Northeast state. It's actually more Republican now than it was then.
0: And the north of the state has become more – has had more success than than it has in the past. So you've got bigger numbers in Duval, Gainesville, and the two counties that comprise the Tallahassee general area. That Those look a lot more blue than yeah. back in 2010. Yeah. And, you know, I just want right. to – I, I want to square the circle on on socialism too because uh, there was a really good quote from uh, data back data for progress uh, election analyst Aidan Smith said on Twitter that um, that there is a there's a divide between what the the data is telling them and the narrative that Democrats. Are using so Democrats who lost their races are saying it was because of of people talking about socialism and people talking about defunding the police and uh, a Data for Progress person points out um, that none of these people who lost were running on Medicare for All or defunding the, the police. They were all opposed to that. It wasn't part of their message. And he says, uh, you know, sorry, you can't have it both ways. These Democrats publicly opposed Medicare for All and publicly, deposed, uh, publicly opposed defunding the police, and they lost. And so what's happening now is the worst of both worlds. We're, we're framing campaigns using right-wing narratives uh, so that centrist, uh, centrist Republicans, centrist Democrats can uh, have an excuse to reject pro- progressive policies based on this false narrative. It's it's all phony. So if you don't have a postmortem that is uh, based in the data, if you don't have have good information in front of you, and you're just relying on the chatter coming from John Morgan's or uh, Abigail Spanberger, or you know whoever is yelling the loudest about socialism right now, uh, if you depend on that and it's wrong, which it seems to be, then we're going to make decisions going forward that don't improve things in the party, and of course, this feels really tiring talking about because. We've been talking about this for 10 years. It happens every single cycle, at least in Florida, where uh, the the postmortem either doesn't happen or the wrong uh, problems are identified, and, and either way, nothing is ever done. Either way, nothing ever changes. <laughs> so you're just kind of stuck.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm quite frankly tired of it. Where we have the same conversations every two years in Florida and and the changes aren't made, nothing is done. And in terms of uh, perception of socialism or whatever, uh, yeah, I guess it works in some targeted audiences. Uh, But uh, more importantly, I don't even think this is policy related to Medicare for All or or socialism or any other uh, progressive policy. But when you have a Speaker of the House that breaks lockdown in the middle of a COVID crisis and goes and gets her hair done in a fancy hair salon, Mm -hmm. Uh, and demands the hair salon reopen, and then has a a multi-thousand-dollar freezer full of ice cream. And these are the optics of the leader of your party. Joe Biden wasn't the leader yet, right? He was the nominee. The Speaker of the House uh, has been very vocal. I I don't know how you don't come across as an elitist, out-of-touch party, which is what the Democrats look like. Outside of university towns, outside of big cities, and uh, certain high-income suburbs, those are elitist places too. The Democrats look like an elitist party to the point where this country is effectively a one-party country outside of those places, thanks to people like Pelosi. And you can't have even a pluralistic uh, liberal democracy with only one party. That's like a fascist state or a communist state, which is what this is become in large parts of the country. The Republican Party has no competition or opposition in large parts of the country. It is not about socialism. It is not about oh, people don't reject the, the Democratic message on health care. All they the representative progressivism. It's about a party that looks elitist and out of touch. And, uh, you know, that's why it was probably a good thing Biden was a nominee Biden, although he's old now and kind of maybe not uh, as sharp as he once was, you know, he, he was always kind of a feisty, uh, engaging guy. Uh, but Pelosi certainly isn't. And uh, the Democrat the, the Republicans, they're not going to be running against Joe Biden in the next election. They're not going to be running against Nancy Pelosi. They're going to run ads against her in every, every congressional district. So, those moderates that lost, the Joe Cunninghams and the Kendra Horns, I mean, I'm sympathetic with them. And I, 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 they, they, they want to think that they lost because of AOC. They lost because of their Speaker of the House, okay? She's really a toxic personality that is indicative of what the average voter in this country outside of big cities or uh, you, uh, or college Town, think of the Democratic Party. They think of it as an out-of-touch, elitist, ivory-tower party. And uh, to me, that's the takeaway. I and mean, we, we can talk about issues and ideology all we want, moderate, centrist, progressive socialism. I, I just think that the optics of, of Nancy Pelosi as the House leader and as the most visible Democrat in the country has been uh, uh, catastrophic for the party of late. And I used to be a big supporter of her, but that was uh, – She's now been the leader for 18 years between being minority leader and and speaker and minority leader and then speaker again. So uh, it ties up. And and, uh, if Democrats keep her in in a position of power and they don't have actually a built-in replacement uh, going into the 2022 cycle, uh, they're going to lose the House. I think it's pretty simple.
0: And that's Cardic, Chris and I Krishnayer dropping some big truth bombs for you. Right now, we got Dennis Campbell and Rick Spizak. in. Uh,
2: ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Mr. <laughs> Dennis Campbell, uh, international author, commentator, and journalist. Uh, Dennis, welcome to Progressive. Thank B. you, sir. It's good to be here. So, uh, <laughs> I guess the question today is, will he go gently into that good night? Huh.
3: Um. I'm going to be a little bit uh, optimistic here and say he's more worried about his reputation than anything else and how people view him, and if he's somehow convinced that this course of action will harm his presidency, his legacy, and everything else, no matter how bad it feels and how you know much he feels aggrieved. Um, he won't go to the. He won't go to the inauguration, you know. He won't be gracious like Obama was and say, "Come on over and let's start." But he will go quietly, and I think that's about the best we can hope for with this asshole.
2: I, 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 I absolutely hope you're right, brother. I
3: absolutely hope you're right. I, yeah. I'm afraid I mean, Biden's remarks this week were such in which he said, you know. Uh, you know, the government knows how to deal with trespassers. I thought that was absolutely (laughs) fucking brilliant on his part to just say, yep, nope, you're out. Goodbye now. Don't let the door hit you on the way out.
2: How's the lockdown going? Uh, I know Boris and the boys have uh, upped the ante on that. Uh, Do you have the degree of idiocy and and obfuscation that we have over here? I mean, I was told the other day by a a local vendor. You know, we got into our new house and we were hiring trash service. Hmm. And uh, when we brought this gentleman into our house to sign the contract, hes he looks at the two of us wearing masks and he says, well, you know, come election day, uh, you won't need those anymore because all that talk about viruses will be over. (laughs) And my wife and I thought, you know, we're not going to argue with the guy. I mean, if he's that... Stupid. Uh-huh. That, uh, that I don't know, insensitive, stupid, whatever you want to call it. Brainwashed, part of the cult? Yeah, brainwashed. <laughs> so so we just nodded, and he said, because you see, and this is where it got really funny. He said, you see, I don't believe in any of that virus stuff. I'm not a socialist. And besides, said the trash man, besides, he said... If I ever become a millionaire, I don't want anybody messing with my money. Well, I'll tell you what, Mr. 55-year-old trash collector, the chances of you having that problem are mighty slim. And I, I never thought I would hear a grown-up person actually make that argument, that they're so in danger of becoming a millionaire that they're worried about their tax portfolio.
3: The stupid is strong. And it, it just, it used to amaze me, but it doesn't anymore. Uh, Laura Ingram gave a hint last night that he's not going to win. <laughs> she suggested that Trump may lose. And uh, he said, if, if and when it's time to accept an unfavorable outcome, we hope it never comes. President Trump's needs to do it with the same grace and composure he demonstrated at that town hall with Savannah Guthrie. I'm thinking, okay. The only reason he showed Grayson Composer was because she had a mute button and she'd shut his ass off if he got too far out of line. So I just, I found it, you know, ridiculous that people who watch Trump 24-7, se- Fox 24-7 and Trump, have an altered state of reality. And it's very powerful because so many of them do. And now he's going to launch his own network probably when he gets out to compete with them. And and I just look at what Sinclair has done, what OANN has done, what Fox has done, and the dumbing down of America is complete. On the positive side, considering
2: all the shenanigans from voter roll suppression to shutting down polls to limiting access to turning in ballot locations, uh, killing so many people slowing down the post office. He still got enough to win. That's, you know, c- can you imagine what the
3: real tally was really like? Well, yeah. I mean, the fact, yeah, and don't let's let's also not forget DeJoy, who I believe the judge is so pissed off is going to throw him in jail, and he should. You know, DeJoy running that United States Postal Service into the ground directly disobeying a court order to scan and make sure all the ballots are in. Now we're going to follow our own system. It's like the guy tries to stick a middle finger up to, you know, authority and realizes that was a bridge too far. Now, I hope you like your orange jumpsuit. But it is incredible. I mean, democracy was the winner. We went from 137 million votes four years ago to 160, maybe 170 when all the counting's done, uh, you know Joe managed on the popular vote side to be four million votes ahead, which is a million more than Hillary got. I'm stunned that Trump went from 62 to 69. I always thought his ceiling was 62 uh, so you know to add seven million, that's scary that there's that many people that support him and his message of hatred and 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 so. Uh, it, it, was, it was truly remarkable to see the level of turnout, the dedication of people to really just get out there and make something happen. And uh, hats off to everybody that braved lines, that went out early, that listened. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just astonishing to see that level of people, you know, that level of, of turnout, and dedication and i think the the real stars of the democratic party this year are Stacey abrams in georgia and pete Buttigieg. and you know pete is if i were in biden's shoes i'd be looking at pete very as my chief of staff because he's unflappable he knows exactly what has to happen he can manage traffic in and out um you know can do what needs to be done as a good spokesman for the organization. I mean, compare him side by side with Meadows, who, by the way, now has COVID. That happened yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's not going to be a partisan free-for-all. You're going to have somebody running things that make sure the trains arrive and depart on time and makes certain that there's a real gatekeeper system so that people can't just walk in and out of the oval whenever they damn well feel like it, which is what happens now. And... You know, that Kamala Harris will be the first in the room and the last in the room gives him the rock and consistency that Obama had with Biden. So I'm optimistic that things are going to get done. And I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised. And I was listening to Beschloss, uh, Michael Beschloss, the, the presidential historian. And he said, every time there's been a very razor thin close election that's led to astounding presidencies. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he talked about Kennedy in 60 and Reagan in 80, and, you know, that, that they ended up being very solid and, and being able to get things done. And with a divided government, as divided as it is, although none of that is settled yet, I mean, we win those two runoffs, it's a 50-50, and Kamala is the tying, you know, casts the the, uh, the vote to untie, you're going to have to force people to the table if that's the if that's the um, the situation that we end up with on, on on January 6th when when that election is over, and I'm excited about that because I was talking to somebody. Oh, I was on a um, a radio program in China on Wednesday on a half-hour panel discussion. And I saw this guy was on there who was a Republican. And, you know, your initial thought is, oh, shit, another Democrat versus Republican food fight. I had two of those on BBC, three of those on BBC. And, you know, they're just they don't accomplish anything. And the people that the Republicans send are idiots when they come over here. They just don't understand and they feel they have to educate people when they get on the airwaves. You know, I'm going to teach you how our system works. It's like, you know, it's just so condescending and so um, ridiculous. Uh, But this guy was a moderate Republican, and it was a good discourse. It didn't get personal. There were no talking points. There was no BS. And I thought, that's the way it should be. And we were, we were talking to each other. Someone, you know, complimented him on his LinkedIn post about having been on it, and he mentioned me by name. And I just said, you know, it, it was really encouraging. Yes, we disagree on policy, but we're not disagreeable to one another or as human beings. And I think we've lost that. And I made the comparison that, you know, it was like Teddy Kennedy and Edward Brooke the Teddy Kennedy being the liberal lion of the the, the Democratic Party in Massachusetts, the, the senior senator, and Edward Brooke, the first African American Republican senator, a very moderate gentleman, and on the Senate floor and in policy discussions, they fought like cats and dogs. And then when they got off the Senate floor, they went and had a drink together. You know, Tip O'Neill and Reagan. People you never thought would come together for any reason fought for their positions and for their policies. At the end, they genuinely liked each other. And I think we've lost that because we've become so polarized. Everybody into your camps, get into the mattresses, lock your grenades at the other side, see how much carnage you can cause along the way. And I think America's tired of that. You know, the reason the Lincoln Project yes it was self-serving but i think the reason it really hit home for so many with the various adverts and the and, and the policies that they that they promoted was that they realized that the way the republican party and trumpism is set up right now it is a prescription for continued disaster and if you can get something that comes behind it that is healing because Joe is essentially a healer. I can't think of a better person for that role right now. Yes, the Bernies, the Berners are saying Bernie would have beat him. No, they wouldn't. He would have had a huge drumming, worse than what Hillary had, because there's no way even the moderate Republicans would get behind Bernie. They'd just stay home. You know what I mean? And I just thought it'd be nice to see if we could get Bernie into the cabinet. It'd be nice to see if we could see some of those ideas come through in the various other departments i'd love to see a cabinet that looks more like america today not a group of white men or rich and privileged white women and uh, and improve from that i was mean, one of the guys on one of the bbc interviews his last question was well joe biden has said he's only going to run for one term and would you support kamala harris in 2024 and I said, well, first of all, it's news to me. I've not heard him say he's only going to run for one term. And secondly, can we get through this election first before we start worrying about what may or may not happen in 2024? I mean, I'm really tired of the perpetual campaign that starts on the 21st of January. It ha- I mean, Trump literally filed for re-election on the first day of his term in office. And I thought... That's absurd. You, you you need a couple of years under your belt to then be able to make an announcement. And, you know, he's been running a perpetual campaign because he likes his rallies.
2: Let me ask you to turn to Europe for a second. The Brexit deal is supposed to be finalized uh, early next year, correct?
3: It's supposed to be finalized now. Goes into effect January one. Yeah, that's what Um, I
2: meant. Where is it going? I I don't hear anybody. It's not going anywhere.
3: It's not going anywhere. We're going to crash out. It's going to be a horrible situation. You know, I've I've noticed something with both Tories and Republicans. They can't govern. They can't do anything that's important. All they can do is stand up and make demagogic speeches that, you know, attack, 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 attack. But when it comes to actually putting policy together and doing something, they can't do it. I mean, I look at the last four years in your country, my country, and, you know, and I think, my God, what has been accomplished? Nothing. The economy is crashing. COVID is out of control. And I think they're just letting it happen because they don't know how to do it. And we have much of the same going on over here. I mean, they finally, on Tuesday, started a month-long lockdown. We're supposed to come out of lockdown on Monday, the 9th. I don't understand and I can't see that happening because numbers are still going through the roof. You know, I got into our supermarket, Tesco, and people were acting like idiots. And you'd never know based on their behavior that we're in one of the highest percentage areas there in Bridge End. People aren't social distancing, they're running all over the store, they don't give a crap who's in their way or what. And I just keep thinking to myself, Get me out of here safely, please. I needed only three items. I got my three items. I got the hell out of there. And I was just stunned at the, you know, it was almost like your your your, your story earlier of your trash guy, you know, wanting to, uh, was, was laughing at you because you were wearing a mask. I'm like, yeah. I mean, I don't go anywhere without this thing, okay? I mean, it's always on. I mean, I sometimes put it on as soon as I, Head out the door to get in the car, even though I'm going to be driving by myself, because I just, I feel safer. Our numbers, even after a two-week lockdown here, are still too high. And it should be extended, and it should be on the same timetable as England.
0: All right, folks, I just realized that I played the Dennis Campbell from last week instead of the Dennis Campbell from this week. So I apologize. We are going to have to do an extra uh, episode so that we can uh play this week's Dennis Campbell episode instead of a repeat of last week's they're just right next to each other in the queue totally apologize um we got a few minutes before Janine Maloff comes on and i wanted to share a a piece from politico about uh it's, it's about Rashida Tlaib you know uh Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar uh did the work did the groundwork to get out the vote in, uh, in in their states and and we wouldn't have won the urban areas, we wouldn't have won those blue states we wouldn't have made those states blue, if it hadn't been for the incredible hard work of, of uh, the uh, of a squad and um, and uh, Rashida Tlaib isn't apologizing for wanting to yank money away from bad police departments She says she has no second thoughts about her embrace of Black Lives Matter Or wanting to aggressively fight climate change House Democrats lost seats instead of expanding their majority Underperforming expectations across the board And moderates have point, have pounced on liberals like Tlaib, the Michigan congresswoman Accusing them of Handing conservatives a set of slogans and policy to, policies to scare voters. Well, you know this is uh, this is the uh, messaging theme that we've been on tonight. And uh, and you, you know, here's the thing: if you don't like those messages, if you think those are bad messages, how come you're running with them? <laughs> how come? You know, uh, John Morgan said, you know, that that uh, um some some Phrases are losers and, and and so why Why would John Morgan Who's supposedly like this big party insider Why would he elevate Those messages Instead of the ones that, that he wants To uh, Be highlighted If not for the fact that what they're actually After is uh, You know Republican friendly uh, Policy And that looks like what What is happening And while we were away, something really interesting came across my um, came across my transom. Uh, Debbie Mercosal Powell was one of the Democrats who lost in, uh, in in South Florida, and she's been saying, along with all of these other people, that the reason why she lost was. Uh, because people were talking about socialism, and Waleed Shah- Shaheed points out, and uh, he's by the way, a uh, senior democratic strategist and spokesperson for the Justice Dems. He worked with Cory Bush, Alex Morse, AOC, and Jamal Bowman. I mean, like, he, he, he knows his stuff, and uh, he says, uh it, the GOP funded attack ads on uh, on Powell in her district. They didn't center her on socialism. They accused her of corruption and cronyism, which is exactly what we were talking about with Donna Shalala and the uh, bailout committee. So you, you know, I think what you have when you hear these people uh, elevating this this message about socialism, I think what you have are people who are covering their assets, um, for, for their own losses. I mean, listen, this isn't, this isn't rocket surgery. This is just how it, how it generally goes. All right. We got, uh, we got Janine Moloff on the line. Bye. Hey, I got your intro music finally. Welcome, and uh, you're going to talk about the uh, clumsy, too.
4: Yeah, it, it's, and everybody's kind of involved in it. You know, it's it's been a week since the election, and Trump still refuses to concede. Now, most media pundits and corporate media reporters just attribute this to, you know, an infantile tantrum on Trump's part, you know, something we just all have to ignore. He'll It'll blow over. Or merely one other alternative um, theory is that it's a method to raise money to pay off campaign debt. I maintain something far more dangerous and that the DNC, when I say the DNC, I mean corporate Dems. I mean, you know, traditional Democratic centrist leaders, so on and so forth, from Biden and Obama all the way down to the local level. They are ignoring this to their own detriment. And so... There was this this piece that uh, ran in the Washington Post on November 12th by Ryan Goodman and Andrew Weissman, and it basically said, "Quote: Barr isn't just humoring Trump; he's weaponizing law enforcement." And this starts with the beginning of it because, you know, as we know, the Attorney General Bill Barr um, last Monday he issued a new policy. And the idea was to open investigations of the election. Now, traditionally, the Federal Department of Justice does not get involved, you know, in elections that are regulated at the state and local level. And a lot of people have said, you know, this timing is very conspicuous. Um, And, you know, I'd say it's far worse than just being conspicuous. Uh, I think that this was the plan all along. Okay, it's my opinion. I'm entitled to it. Um, There was an internal Justice Department memo, and it was um, mentioned in a piece by JustSecurity.org. And basically, this memo is designed to allegedly placate Trump, okay? But I think it's doing more than that. And the idea is just to cast doubt on the election itself and on the results. And the writers of this piece agree, and they say this is a really dangerous misreading of the Barr memo. And they examined the document and they showed that Bill Barr has really gone beyond what is considered appropriate action to, quote, unleash powers within the Justice Department that permit far more than appeasement of the president with empty gestures, end quote. So Barr is weaponizing DOJ. He's basically acting like like Trump's personal lawyer um, and a mob lawyer at that instead of supposed to be, you know, representing the interests of the United States. And, you know, this, what this is happening is Barr stating the memo that he's authorized these election investigations. And the Barr memo itself contains what these two authors call three revealing elements. And these three really revealing elements, as they call it, <clears throat> excuse me, they accuse it lowers the threshold for what is necessary to begin, and what he they consider an improper political investigation. And the first part is this: bar changes. He changed the timing and the goal of an election investigation by uh, DOJ. Now, before then, just DOJ. The policy, um, basically, according to justice.gov, foreswore rather didn't. For seeking to reopen an election after it ended, in other words, it only called for investigative steps, covert or otherwise, um, but not to interfere with counting or the certification process. And you know, ex- the only time that would be different is if there was reason to believe that records might be destroyed. Um, but the department was supposed to avoid any. Outward steps until, quote, the election to which they pertain had been certified and time for contesting the election results had expired. So, the first part of that is that you were supposed to wait to reopen an election after it ended. And if you did it before, it was supposed to be covert, you know, secretly if you had to do it beforehand to prevent evidence from being destroyed but you still couldn't interfere with voting or the counting or the certification process. But Barr changed that. And so what he did, he, they said he, quote, explicitly authorized actions before certification. And he called the previous approach that was considered legitimate passive and delayed. And he claimed that federal agents couldn't realistically, quote, to use his words, rectify an election. But again, that rectification isn't DOJ's role normally. And, you know, but then again, according to what these writers put, Barr allegedly, quote, cryptically noted that he already authorized these types of investigations. Now, the second part of this is Barr, he lowered the threshold for opening an investigation so that even slight, what he called, quote, irregularities could be investigated. Prior to that it was only about you can only DOJ can only investigate if there were potential crimes. And nowhere does Barr say that allegations have to rise to a criminal level for DOJ to enter the picture. And until this past Monday, the long standing policy had explicitly said that non criminal irregularities have to be dealt with by other means. Like recounts, educational programs, disciplinary actions, and private lawsuits, the federal government wouldn't have anything to do with. So once again, um, Barr said you don't have to have a criminal threshold. So and the third part, Barr takes pains to underscore the inherent authority. And I'm just this is a quote. Quote Barr takes pains to underscore the quote inherent authority of each of the 93 U.S. attorneys throughout the country to decide whether to an open an investigation as they deem appropriate without approval from the Attorney General or the Justice Department's career public integrity section personnel in Washington. End quote. So basically ninety three US attorneys can independently decide now whether they're gonna open an investigation uh, even on Election irregularities where there doesn't seem to be any, any evidence of potential criminality, as they quote, deem appropriate. That's a very loosey goosey. And they don't have to have any approval from the AG himself or the Justice Department's public integrity section. So this is basically Barr's way, in my opinion, of evading responsibility. If each, each one of those 93 U.S. attorneys decides to do this. They're kind of out there on their own because this is very vague, but he's letting them, he's doing this hands-off. It looks like hands-off, but it really isn't. And this is something that, again, a responsible, legitimate attorney general would never authorize this. So that's what's happening with Bill Barr. And you think, okay, why are they doing this? You know, is he just... Is Bill Barr just placating Trump and his, you know, and his craziness? Well, there's a little more to it than just that. And by the way, the two writers of the Washington Post article I just spoke about, Ryan Goodman is a former special counsel at the Department of Defense and a law professor at New York University. He's also co-editor-in-chief at Just Security. And Andrew Weissman is a law professor also at New York University and a senior member of special counsel Robert S. Mueller's office. He also previously served as general counsel of the FBI, and he is the author of a book, quote, Where Law Ends Inside the Mueller Investigation, end quote. Okay, so you think, okay, why is Barr doing this? What is the deal? Well, now we have Naomi Klein, and she calls it Trump's tin pot coup. And, you know, she comes up with a series of ideas as to why the GOP and Bill Barr they're letting Trump carry on like he won re-election when he didn't, you know, and she lists several things. This, you know, is this, quote, a grift to raise cash for Donald Trump? B, is this, quote, a ploy to goose the Republican turnout in Georgia's high-stakes Senate runoffs? C, is this an elaborate scheme to flatter a nuclear-armed narcissist into gradually accepting the reality he is what he fears most, a loser. I'm just, this is a direct quote. D is this an attempt to preemptively drain the Biden-Harris administration of perceived legitimacy in an effort to clip its wings, and then use its ineffectiveness to secure big Republican wins in the midterms? Or E, is it an actual thought-through coordinated plot for Republican-controlled state legislators to use the pretext of public concerns over voter fraud? Concerns methodically manufactured out of thin air through sheer force of repetition by Trump and his minions, end quote. And, and to, by Trump and his minions to claim a constitutional duty to override their state certification, certified election results and instead directly appoint Republican presidential election, electors. So this last part I'm going to read again, quote, is this, quote, an actual thought through, coordinated plot for Republican controlled state legislators legislatures to use the pretext of public concerns over voter fraud, concerns methodically manufactured out of thin air through sheer force of repetition by Trump and his minions, to claim a constitutional duty to override their state's certified election results and instead directly appoint Republican presidential electors. End quote. Now, Klein doesn't think it's necessarily that. She thinks that that it could happen, but she doesn't really think that's the main part. I do think. David Sirota thinks that, too, and I agree with him. I think that Bill Barr set the stage by claiming election fraud and trying to legitimize those accusations by granting DOJ prosecutors illegitimate authority to investigate even irregularities in election results when there was no criminal complaint or any suspicion of criminality. And I think that the long, you know, what they're trying to do is to make this idea of election fraud seem so real. Several states where the Republicans control the state-level legislature will have enough, they think, enough public justification to say, to override the state's certified election results and say, you know what, we don't believe that this was a fair election. We think it was fraudulent. Therefore, we're going to say, no, Joe Biden might have won this state, but guess what? Since we suspect that the election was fraudulent, we're going to set aside those electors that normally would have been pledged to Joe Biden, whoever the winner was, and we're going to set up our own electors, which are going to be Trump loyalists, because that's who the GOP is going to, to push. And, and that's a way of stealing the presidency, and it's not so far-fetched. Um, David Sirota, who worked for Barney Sanders, reported um, in his daily, daily poster column about a paper by Ohio State constitutional law expert Edward Foley. Okay. And it warned about that scenario just last year. And it explained how state legislatures could attempt this type of constitutional cover. In other words, they could literally overthrow the will of the people. And the election results and say, no, it was fraudulent. We don't have the proof necessarily, but there's enough doubt. So guess what? Even though, let's say, um, Georgia comes through and it all goes for Biden, guess what? Because there was fraud, those, we're not going to send those electors. We're not going to certify those electors to make the final decision. Instead, the state legislature, which maybe is controlled by Republicans, will appoint their own slate of electors which are bound to be Trump loyalists. And that's a way of literally overthrowing our election. And Greg Palast warned about this also actually. This is this could happen. And for some reason the dnc and the democrats they're just making light of this they think it's a joke it's not a joke and so this is something where this could be a very real coup um it's something that the u.s has backed in regime change operations you know with governments that we didn't like but one again once again, if, if several if multiple state legislators, legislatures decide that there's enough public sentiment of enough Trump protesters, for instance, to legitimize the idea of saying, no, we believe these Trumpers, we're not going to certify the electors that Biden won then the legislature steps in and appoints their own slate. And it's, these are Republican controlled legislatures. And am I saying, could they literally steal the election and nullify our rights? Yes, they could. And I think that that's what Pompeo was inferring. Now this all, is all based though on whether or not there's enough public sentiment. That's the other thing. That's why they're so riled up about, you know, getting their base out there that is why it's so incredibly important that we can't allow the mainstream uh press to treat this like it is just a little lark that it's a joke and trump will get over it no they need to challenge him because he is there this is a coup in the making and they need to challenge bill barr once again the dnc and the democratic party they should be out there defending the integrity of our of our votes but they're not, and you really have Republican lawmakers in multiple states that Biden you know, basically won, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, that are insinuating or inferring that the results could be fraudulent. They haven't produced any actual evidence, but with this type of a coup, it's all about public perception. It's not about evidence. You can't just trust that the evidence will save us. Biden and the DNC should take this threat seriously as opposed to brushing it off. The Biden's come on man approach isn't going to work. You know, you have to remember just 20 short years ago. The Brooks Brothers riot stopped a a mandated recount in Florida. That would have most likely handed the election to Al Gore. And instead, it went to the court, and the court coronated George W. Bush. We need to scream foul. They're not. We need to hold the corporate uh, mainstream media accountable as well. There's been literally zero evidence of any voter fraud. There has, however, been incredible amounts of well-documented evidence showing massive premeditated voter suppression that it was basically crafted by the GOP, which, by the way, that is a felony. But once again, it seems like the DNC didn't learn its lesson from 2000 and the Stage Brooks Brothers riots, which in reality was a form of election tampering. Every political goon which has gone, that, have, that have gone on to better positions should have been criminally prosecuted on the spot for that. I mean, I remember seeing it. They were banging the door down. And that's what we saw happen in some states recently. Once again, this is not legitimate. So the Democratic Party should be defending the integrity of our election process. They should not be ignoring Trump rioters. You know, We saw, I believe it was in Detroit, Trumpers trying to bang, bang the doors down because they were trying to they were trying to stop the count, and that's ridiculous. And so, you know, again, David Sirota sounded the alarm. He called it a coup. Okay, and um, you know, once again, this is a deliberate strategy. It's not just Trump's normal Looney Tunes. And as far as I'm concerned, every attorney involved, especially Mike. P- Secretary of State Mike, Mike Pompeo and Attorney General Bill Barr should face disbarment because they're violating their oath of office. And so, you know, once again, legislatures, this is, and this was, again, from Ohio State University Law Professor Edward Foley, in 2019, he said the legislatures could use the public perception, this is a quote, Legislatures could use a public perception of fraud to try and to invoke their constitutional power to ignore their state's popular votes and reject certified election results and appoint slates of Trump electors. And this is very real. Okay? We cannot ignore this. And so you have to realize that even if let's say a state went for Biden. Their state legislatures, though, are mainly controlled by Republicans that would have every incentive to overthrow the vote. And that's what we're talking about here. Because what'll happen is this. If both legislative chambers claim that the certified popular vote can't be trusted, and it can't be trusted because of a, an alleged blue shift that occurred, say, in overtime past election day itself, then those chambers could claim that they have the constitutional right to supersede. In other words, throw out the popular vote. They would have direct authority. They would appoint the presidential electors, which would be Trump loyalists, and that's it. And this sounds really crazy, but it's real. And we should not allow any of this to go on, none, right? And that's why they keep repeating the same things over and over again, and the mainstream media is letting them get away with it. This is not a lark. This is not funny. This is real, okay? Um, Joe Lockhart, who worked for the Clinton administration, wrote a piece in the um, independent.uk uk. It reflected pretty much the same thing, and so we have a situation here where it really is an emergency. We should not be joking about this. We should worry less about whether or not he's going to appoint Elizabeth Warren or Bernie into a, a can into a, a, um, a cabinet. We need to make sure that the electors. As the voters declared, show up on December 14th and reflect the popular vote. That's it. And this crazy, this craziness, Trump refusing to concede and all that—that's all part of it. He is being advised, I'm sure, by people like Mom, Mike Pompeo, and Bill Barr, who are both Ivy League um, attorneys. So by now, it has become patently clear that the GOP is willing to do anything no matter how heinous to hold on to power. It's also clear they despise democratic rule almost as much as they despise the working class. So now there is the distinct possibility that Trump will try to steal the election by having stooges such as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Attorney General Bill Barr plant doubt in legitimacy of the election process itself. Since the GOP was not able to fully suppress the vote of minority communities, and since mail-in votes were accepted and the Post Office wasn't allowed to delay it any further in this deadly COVID season, the last strategy has been to slander the entire process by assigning false accusations of voter fraud. Now, amidst all the investigations, there has not been a single shred of evidence supporting these slanderous accusations. Yet the Attorney General and other prominent Republicans maintained the slander. Meanwhile, the corporate media treat this, as an, again, as an infantile tantrum ordered by Trump, but there's something far more sinister operating here. If these GOP apparatchniks can successfully push this big lie, then the case, once again, as I said before, can be made at the state level for the, for the voter fraud slander. This, in turn, could place enough doubt on the assignment of various state electors to remand, in other words, send back, to remand the assignment of electors to the state legislators legislatures, many dominated by Republicans loyal to Trump. In essence, these state legislatures could overthrow the will of the voters and assign electors loyal only to Trump, and Trump could steal the election. And what is the DNC doing? Nothing. These accusations of fraud and corruption coming from the GOP aren't new. Twenty years ago, the Brooks Brothers riots, as I said before, shut down the Florida recount. The recount issue went to the Supreme Court, and the court coronated George W. Bush, as now... The the DNC of 20 years ago refused to fight, and the world suffered through eight abusive years of W. To add further insult to injury, the first black president refused to pursue criminal charges against the very criminal administration of George W. Bush. This is the administration that created a technically legal argument to justify torture. Obama's choice was to, quote, look forward, not back. This abdication on the part of President Obama was only served to make the GOP bolder in their constant quest for oligarchy. Now we have suffered the abuse of Donald Trump and his Confederates for four long years. It is not only another dereliction of duty for the DNC to ignore this possible, illegal, and treasonous coup, but it's an insult to everyone who has been active in the resistance against Trump's what can only be called American Nazism. This is not the time to appease Trump's rabid supporters. Appeasement doesn't work with abusers. Appeasement only makes an abuser bolder. We must always fight this oppression or as, as Nobel laureate and Holocaust survivor, Ellie Visel wisely said, quote, it may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest, end quote. And that's my report.
0: Wow, Janine, that is, uh, that's uh, chilling. So the, the uh date we need to look out for is december 14th
4: and well, that's when uh, the electors vote the real date is december 8th they need to look out for because that's okay. december 8th is when the electors are assigned december 14th is when it's set in stone and they elect so there's two dates
0: and there's a at the end of uh Sirota's column on this He says, what terrifies me is it's clear that somebody is thinking about the violence that follows. We have a fired Mm -hmm. defense secretary and a replacement of pretty senior people in the defense department. What is that for? Why would you even waste your time as the president right now worrying about firing your defense secretary? And, and uh, yeah, a lot of people
4: because Esper refused Esper refused to the idea of using troops against American citizens. Mm-hmm. That's why he fired him.
0: Huh.
4: Okay. So you can see where <clears throat> Trump is going with this. Okay. Well,
0: Janine, thank you so much for this report. That was stunning. And uh, we will see you again next week. And are you doing a, 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 the environmental justice um, report
4: this week? Uh, I am doing EJR this week. It's It's been, it was delayed. I took, you know, basically a week hiatus just to catch up with things. So okay. we will be back this Thursday.
0: All right. want to make sure that we promo that if you're, if it's okay. good. So we will talk to you next week. And uh, for yeah. all our listeners, thank you once again for listening to the end. And I uh, can't wait for next week and uh, everything that that brings. So uh, take care. We'll see you then.